What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rico's Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I'm joined today by a very special guest uh, from a very special company, uh, Joe Kirk, who is the brand curator over at Grand Seiko. How's it going today, Joe? Good, good. Just, uh, you know, another day in the life in uh, New Jersey. So cold. <laughs> yeah, well, it's cold cold up in Jersey. It's cold over here in uh, northern Canada as well, too. Different kind of cold, but cold. Yeah. I'm sure you got that you got that damp cold over there, I guess. Hey, you're you're close to the ocean, so you kind of got like that that cold that gets right into your bones, hey. I bet it's a little colder by you, but I like to complain. So, what can no, I say? That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um i was because i was in new york uh, in november and i was like i left and it was like minus 30 here and i was down there and it was like plus 25 or something like that uh and, <laughs> and i'm like this is this is the craziest november i've ever seen it's awesome wearing a t-shirt walking around manhattan it was great yeah it was uh it's been very warm and then just recently starting to get some cold so yeah well, it is it is january or i guess now it's february so i guess now we're it's that time of year i suppose where winter is really setting in so um <laughs> I, would, I would imagine so uh, as we uh you know before we kind of get into a little bit about yourself and your history and and the brand's history and all that really quickly what do you have on the wrist off, uh today uh white birch so the grand seiko slgh 005 is the uh high beat version of the white birch we do make two different iterations one spring drive with a five-day power reserve and then this is a high beat uh with 80 hour power reserve so I've had this for a year and two months now. Um, easily my most frequently worn watch. Yeah. What do you enjoy specifically about that piece? You know, one of the first things that really uh, caught my attention about it was the the legibility mm -hmm. is above and beyond anything I'd ever owned. Even, you know, like my Snowflake, uh, you know, it's kind of the iconic model of Grand Seiko, right? And that was always the most legible watch I had. And this even trumps that it's it's a far uh, above and beyond what uh what i was expecting in terms of legibility and low light settings and the ability just to read at, at a quick glance um it's got very distinct you know hour hand and, and minute hand um so the the other thing is like they're so complex they have all these different facets that capture light and the the instance where i realized how easy it was to read was actually on a dark plane you know, mm -hmm. like all the lights were down, you know, I was kind of in and out of sleep. And I woke up, looked at my watch and it was, you know, pretty much dark in the cabin. And I was like, I was like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is impressive. So, but aside from that, I mean, the dial, the movement, uh, you know, the, the way it wears too, the feel of it is very different from any other Grand Seiko. So it's, uh, you know, it's a kind of a part of the new design code for this particular uh, collection. Mm. So yeah no it's it's it's. I mean, you touched on quite a few different things about kind of modern grand seiko where you know we're just talking about like the dial work the case work like the complexity and, and that's something that we definitely want to get into a little bit later on but yeah such a great representation i think of like everything grand seiko really is about right now in the modern era right so definitely a topic we will dig into later on in the podcast but before we kind of jump in, in, into that like let's talk a little bit about yourself i mean you have sort of a very uh, interesting uh story that led you to Grand Seiko and, and like, let's, let's start right at the beginning about like, where did watches start for you? And then what was sort of that pathway that led you into actually working in the industry at one of the most recognizable names in, in the biz? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of an odd story. If, if anything, uh, you know, the first time I ever discovered that watches worked off of anything aside from batteries uh, you know, I was very into uh, cigars at the time and, mm. And uh, I was reading European Cigar Journal 
and uh, an article about you know the the then master of complications, Ron Mueller at the time, and uh, that was kind of like where the light bulb went off that you know oh there's like these little micro motors that uh, are are powering watches that's really, really cool. And then not too long later, uh, I started working at kind of like a men's luxury store uh, that sold everything, like literally like, uh, you know, like cigars to, you know, uh, shaving goods, like straight razors and stuff like that. And then uh, also sold watches. And they didn't, you know, they didn't have a lot of big mainstream brands, a lot of like really niche, uh, kind of under the radar, but high end um, and, and very nice quality, especially for the money uh, type brands. And then started carrying eventually Seiko, uh, but we didn't carry the, you know, typical two, $300 Seikos at the time. It started when uh, the movement type of spring drive was introduced. Mm. And back then that was, you know, 2005, 2006. Um, really my first introduction to, to Seiko as a company back then, uh, this is before Grand Seiko was sold globally. Um, it was only sold in Japan at the time. Uh, it was this, collection called spring drive and they were i think three to six thousand was you know the rough starting price and uh once i got introduced to those it was over all right i I went from being a very uh you know swiss and german snob to opening my eyes more and it was really something that kind of pushed me over the edge um in terms of trying to learn more Mm -hmm. and so not just about seiko but uh, also about watchmaking in general mm-hmm. um shortly thereafter i got introduced to grand seiko and you know i bought one from japan because i couldn't buy one in the states at the time and once that happened it was it was really over i became pretty obsessed and i think that happens to a lot of grand seiko collectors where you know you start researching and then you just go down the rabbit hole and you get lost and you know i was one of the uh probably many that didn't come back <laughs> And so, so what was your first yeah. uh, Grand Seiko that you actually ended up getting? So I actually, I bought a, a Quartz limited edition first uh, that was only sold in Japan at the time. I didn't have it for very long because shortly thereafter, I, I ended up with the Snowflake mm. and uh, they were quite similar. And so, you know, I had a, actually a customer at the time, a friend of, uh, at the time as well, that uh, he was just bugging me to buy this Quartz watch because it was ultra accurate and there was no way to get it because it was only sold in Japan. And uh, after I got the snowflake, I stopped wearing pretty much every other watch that I owned and uh, including the other Grand Seiko, the Quartz Grand Seiko. And, um, you know, I I caved into him eventually, but uh, the snowflake is still a part of my collection. Um, You know, I have the old Seiko Grand Seiko dial, which is, you know, the first Grand Seiko that, you know, uh, that I really, you know, invested in, I would say that was, uh, probably about 2011 or 12 that I picked that up, um, towards the end of 11 or early 2012, it was 2012, uh, around my birthday. So that's, you know, you know, first month of, uh, 2012, I had that on my wrist and, you know, probably about seven years that dominated my wrist. So. From from like a from like a collector's perspective, like you, know, you mentioned, kind of like when people start to kind of circle around the the Grand Seiko sphere and they they sort of start to dip their dip their toes into the water a little bit. Like, do you really think like that that snowflake is sort of like the the quintessential piece to like go for and try as like the tryout piece or the the first piece as someone starting to test the waters on Grand Seiko? 
Yeah, I think I think that it's, you know, it's become iconic for Grand Seiko. But, you know, part of the thing that really sold me on it uh, was the first time that I saw it was was during an event. Mm -hmm. And there was a craftsman from Japan who came out and demonstrated the assembly of spring drive for the very first time uh, Mm -hmm. for Grand Seiko. Um, And that was the watch he was wearing. And at that point, I'd never seen the watch before. And the dial, you know. All we could, all we knew is that the dial in person was very different from the pictures that you could find online, mm. and so you were kind of buying it sight unseen. But uh, you know, I had the opportunity to see it in person, and the dial was just incredible. And they told the story of how it's you know a tribute to their hometown's winters, and mm-hmm. that it's mimicking the snowfall in in uh, the Shinshu region of Japan where the watches are made, and you know that just it just clicked. And I was like, wow, I've never heard of a brand that just had so much respect for their hometown. And, you know, for, for me, uh, it, it made it unique. Like there was, there was no other brand that had this. There was no other, you know, concept that I'd ever heard that really, you know, portrayed this kind of beautiful story. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a known story back then. It was just, they made it for themselves and then the watch, you know, was sold without selling the story. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, Grand Seiko, you know, they tell the story of the source of inspiration. But nature has always played a big part in the design and, and DNA of the brand, at least for the modern era, mm-hmm. I would say. Well, and would you say that is sort of one of the really unique things about Japanese watchmaking as a whole, not just with Grand Seiko, although we are here to discuss Grand Seiko, is sort of that sense of like naturalism and how that impacts design when it comes to creating watches that might be more unique compared to like, you know, the stark utilitarianism of like German watches or more of the classic conservative design of Swiss watches? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Japanese culture overall, I feel, has a very high respect for nature, mm-hmm. uh, you know, preservation of nature and, you know, even, uh, you know, not necessarily uh, pertaining to nature, but just, you know, the way that old things have been preserved in Japan, um, you know, with a very high respect, but also kind of, you know, paving this new forward path uh, where it's very modern at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's this kind of... Um, let's say hybrid culture of, of, uh, old meets new. And, you know, I've always really admired that. And, and the, like I said, the respect for nature and, and preservation. Um, I think that, you know, realistically, I think that there's also that kind of, you know, fundamental, uh, practical watchmaking Mm -hmm. aspect that, uh, like you said, you know, is very, uh, let's say German in watchmaking. Um, where it's, you know, form and function before everything else. Um, I've always felt that, you know, Germany and uh, Japan have shared that similarity. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very uh, engineer focused. (laughs) Yes. Well, and and just like finding new and better ways of even just in like the, the like engineering process of the watches themselves, right? Like that constant improvement, you know, that development of technology when, you know, when we talk about, like, I guess like one of the things that's so interesting, like a good, a good example with that with Grand Seiko is like on one end, you have like the very traditional like Zeratsu polishing of cases, right? And then on the other side, you have technologies like spring drive, right? Which are, you know, you have the past and that, that traditional element while also focusing on creating something new and improving and, and, and uh, advancing the technologies as well at the same time. Of course, of yeah. course. You know. 
So what respect, you know, respect the past and uh, embrace the future. Exactly. And, and, and <laughs> so you, you talked about, um, you know, kind of how you got yourself into the brand as a collector and as an individual, where did that transition happen between collector into actually working at the company? So, you know, I was in retail, uh, you know, selling watches for over 11, eh, approximately 11 years, let's say. Um, and then, uh, you know, I uh, departed that uh, to, kind of do more freelance work for about a year. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I had, you know, obviously made a lot of friends at uh, Grand Seiko at the time. But at the time, actually, uh, it was still Seiko as a company was distributing Grand Seiko and it was still a collection under the Seiko umbrella. Um, so that was approximately 2015. I was doing freelance work. Uh, you know, I, even in my previous job in retail, I was doing a lot of writing, photography, you know, um, web design and development, you know, kind of, kind of the background. Um, so I had heard that they were going to be opening a boutique in Miami, mm. uh, in 2016. And, you know, they had asked if I was interested in joining the team and, you know, I obviously didn't want to share my excitement right off the bat, but, uh, I was like, there's no other brand I would want to work with. Like mm-hmm. this is, this is, you know, this is really an amazing company and it's such a bright future. Because it's still, you know, such a small kind of niche brand, but I've always felt that Grand Seiko is going to just propel itself very quickly forward. And maybe I didn't think it was going to be as quick as it did, um, but you know, it's uh, it, it's really come a long way in a short period of time, and you know, that's that that's been really exciting. So I started uh, I started working uh, as I mentioned for Seiko but more specialized in Grand Seiko and luxury products uh, like Crador. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard a little bit about here and there, mm-hmm. but, um, and so I worked in the boutique in Miami and, and then, uh, you know, after a couple of years there, um, moved up to New Jersey at the corporate office uh, where I'm located now. Mm-hmm. So, and so what would you like, how would you describe, I guess, like you, you talked a little bit about like, you know, it's kind of the only company you'd want to work for and touched on a little bit about kind of what it's like being there, but like, how would you really describe like the culture is working at Grand Seiko as a company? Like what is, if you could put sort of, uh, you know, into your own words, what is it really like in the day-to-day working at Grand Seiko, right? Because it is sort of, uh, sort of on the consumer side, it is kind of a like company that's shrouded somewhat in mystery, right? So. Maybe. Um, I think, I think a lot of people would be surprised how it is on the inside. You know, we're, uh, you know, it's, it, we're very tightly knit. Mm-hmm. So you know, very, uh, very lucky and fortunate to, to work with the team that, that we have. Um, you know, it, it started off as a very small team and, and we've grown. Um, but, you know, when joined the company, uh, Seiko was very big and vast. And I probably didn't know half of the people in, in you know, in the building, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when Grand Seiko and Seiko split, when Grand Seiko became an independent brand in 2017, um, you know, the company, uh, had just hired a new, uh, his role was to be the, the president of Grand Seiko Corporation of America, which was launched in 2018. And so that group, uh, for Grand Seiko Corporation of America was very small, um, very tightly knit. You know, we worked very close together to try and, uh, you know, do, do our responsibilities, do our diligence and, and try and, uh, you know, educate people on the brand and, and get, uh, get the name out there a bit, let's say, but, you know, I think people just kind of always knew it. Um, but realistically, you know, I mean, we all 
really love what we do. You know, it's an amazing brand to work for. Um, you know, the, one of the highlights for me is, is, you know, being able to work with the the craftsmen and women uh, from our studios, doing events across the country, um, you know, working with some of the engineers and designers, uh, learning more about, you know, development or, you know, design concepts or, you know, the strict rules that are involved in design and development in Grand Seiko, because it's, you know, there are a, a lot of rules set um, for Grand Seiko. And, mm -hmm. you know, we can touch on that more later. But, um, you know, I think overall, just, you know, working for the company, um, our, 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 our company has grown, um, but it's, it's still very small scale. I think uh, people would be surprised. Mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, very, uh, very much a little family. <laughs> and, and so for yourself, with regards to, you know, your position as a brand curator, can you expand on, I guess, what that position entails and sort of what your day to day is specifically? Oh, that is a tough question. <laughs> we asked so, the hard um, questions here <laughs> yeah 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 um so brand curator i i guess is uh you know one of the one of the ways to explain it is i do a lot of the you know kind of uh public facing things so you know i've done uh you know a lot of seminars uh demonstrations public speaking a lot of public speaking and and uh you know interviews much you know much like this um Horological Society in New York, as an example, I've, I've done two lectures uh, and, you know, obviously uh, I didn't feel I was a very, you know, exciting uh, person to have on the pedestal there. And I, you know, uh, was very honored to, to be invited to speak there, but I brought uh, some very special guests along with me so that it was a little more exciting for the crowd. Um, but, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is some of the stuff that I'll that I'll end up doing uh, a lot of events across the country as well. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the times if there's an event at a at a retail partner of ours or or just in general, uh, the GS9 Club, uh, as an example, is I don't know if you're familiar with GS9 Club. Um, no. Basically, it's like our collectors club. Mm. Um, so Grand Seiko had launched it in Japan originally in 2015. Um, and we wanted to bring it right over, of course. But uh you know, it was at 20, end of 2020 that we were finally able to launch uh, GS9 Club outside of Japan, really, uh, in the U.S. market for the first time. And so, unfortunately, though, our plan was to launch it with a big party, uh, which is kind of what they do in Japan. You know, it's a, more of an event-driven um, thing. And, you know, 2020, it was a very bad time to try and have a party. So... We did a, a much bigger digital presence, mm -hmm. and then uh, 2021 we did our first event, uh, which you know, several hundred people came to Manhattan for, um, and then we just did one in November. Uh, I wish I would have known. I would have gladly invited you. The uh, the um, uh, event this year was in, or this last year, I should say, it was in Brooklyn. So we had a, an amazing venue there. Um, hundreds of people again it was you know it was over 500 people at this event and wow. it was an all-day affair too so um gs9 club is kind of like the give back to the customers you know we're doing a lot of events not just these we do the huge uh events in new york basically but um we do these smaller scale events uh, mostly in uh, collaboration with our retail partners but um we're doing them across the country so you know it's a good way to kind of meet uh, like-minded people um, you know, and we're also producing some, you know, exclusive content, which is available on the website. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we're also doing like physical print. So there's a GS nine club magazine 
that's exclusive to Grand Seiko members or GS9 members. So all you have to do basically is buy a Grand Seiko from an authorized dealer and you can join, you know, as long as you're, you know, so in, sounds, that, uh, in that demographic. So it sounds like there's a lot of like um, work being done to really, uh, I guess, create, not, I guess, I guess the community is already there, but to sort of give back and, and benefit and encourage and add to the community that supports the brand as well too right there's really yeah, that there's totally. that 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 connection that's really being made in an official capacity between the brand and the community that loves the product as well yeah someone at the, this year's gs9 event told me that they said that they've never been to a brand event of that scale mm-hmm. and typically if they ever see anything about a, a brand event of that scale it's typically only for the media Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they invite celebrities or they invite, you know, like their top VVIP clients who spend, you know, tons of money with them. Um, it's not, you know, in this instance, it was, you know, you could have bought a $3,000 quartz watch and you're invited to this event. Mm-hmm. You can make it or you're welcome to come. So it was, uh, you know, it was really refreshing to hear that, that, you know, this people are appreciating the, uh, you know, the the kind of return, let's say, that we want to try and give back. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I deal a lot in the client relations side of things and, you know, meeting with, you know, everyone on, you know, on the collecting side and all the different communities, um, you know, I kind of specialize also in, you know, our highly technical pieces. So, you know, that's that's another side project. But, um, yeah, responsible for a lot of different things, wear a lot of different hats within the company, but we all do. You know, it's we've all got to kind of have our hands everywhere, so. Ah, it sounds like a really interesting and engaging way of, uh, you know, being involved in the day-to-day operations of the company, right? And it sounds like your your role is extremely important to that. So I think that's incredibly cool. And uh, I'll continue know, it, to hope so. Well, it's really it's interesting. <laughs> again, it's, it's what's cool about it from like the the uh, like community side of it is is seeing again someone who's sort of had that trajectory of basically just starting out as a fan in the community and then ending up actually working at the company they love and that's so cool to, to hear about um with yeah regards- i'm still a huge fan and nerd about the brand too it's like you know when we you know, when we come out with new stuff i'm like i'm always just you know cloud nine is so excited <laughs> well that's 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 the kind of people you want working for your company though right people that are actually passionate about the product and about what the brand does right i mean i think like you know what's really interesting to sort of uh start to explore and get into now if we can is the history of of grand seiko as a company right because there's so much history there and there's you know we talk about going into things like grammar of design the the seiko lion the the uh the swiss time trials the uh the, the competitive story between grand seiko and King Seiko and kind of you know all that type of stuff and 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 you know I I would I my understanding is you're somewhat of a subject matter expert on all of the above and I'd love to hear kind of your I thoughts. Spent a lot of time researching, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear kind of if you could take us through you know some of those highlights or just through kind of where the brand originated and some of those stories uh, that are so important to the foundation of the brand now. Yeah, I mean you know Grand Seiko was really uh, kind of born to be the ultimate in you know practical watchmaking for Seikosha at the time the factory mm-hmm. um so you know the kind of the long story short you know we we opened um a factory called Daini Seikosha right mm-hmm. back in 1937 so we opened this manufacturer um more specializing in wristwatches it was Daini means like basically the second Right. So originally Seikosha was, you know, made to be 
more oriented towards clocks and then eventually you know desk clocks and and pocket watches um so when we opened Dainisekosha that was more wristwatch driven and so Dainisekosha um in the 40s had to kind of open a subsidiary branch in central Japan in you know what's known as the Shinshu region uh that they dubbed Sua Dainisekosha mm-hmm. and so eventually they merged with uh, our manufacturer there, which was uh, kind of an offshoot, let's say, and they created uh, a different company separate from Daini Seikosha, just known as, as Sua Seikosha. Mm. And so Daini and Sua Seikosha became kind of competitors, still part of the same greater company, but this internal competition began. Mm. And so that started basically in 1959. And in 1960, Grand Seiko was launched basically, you know, uh, December 18th in 1960 to be the pinnacle practical watch of any of the Seiko shows. Mm-hmm. And so from there, they, you know, uh, basically developed, you know, this ultimate practical watch to be the highest possible accuracy. Right. So it was really the first uh, chronometer grade wristwatch in japan mm-hmm. um and you know chronometer they weren't testing it just to the um standard chronometer standard the the regular chronometer standard um they were testing it to the excellent standard which was a step above and so all of the criteria was was matching that chronometer standard so they continued to do that for the first grand seiko following uh with a, a model called the self-dater which was based on the first grand seiko but added a, a quick set date, which was an uncommon feature back in, you know, 1964 when it was uh, launched for sale. And then, um, you know, I think one of the most iconic years for Grand Seiko in history was 1967. And so 1967, we launched uh, the first automatic Grand Seiko, which was the 62 GS. Mm-hmm. That was still made at Sua Seiko Show. Same with the self-dater in the first Grand Seiko. But also... Uh, in 1967, we had the the launch of the 44 GS, which that was that was the real kind of pioneering path watch for Grand Seiko in terms of design. Mm. So, you know that that design grammar that you had mentioned, right? This Grand Seiko style was established with that watch, and so the basically the 44 GS principle was based on the same concept of a diamond, right? Mm -hmm. Flat surfaces, sharp edges, perfect mirror finishing to achieve this beautiful interplay of light and shadow, right? Mm -hmm. They shimmer light beautifully. And so that's, you know, the the case, but also the hands and indices. So the indexes are multifaceted. The hands have beveled edges and they're perfectly, you know, they're diamond cut on the hands and markers so that they glimmer light, make it easy to read in the, you know, in the darker setting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not a lot of people know this, but the 44 GS has been the rule book for every Grand Seiko design moving forward. That mm-hmm. that that's the code, right? Okay. That's the uh, that's the formula to design success for Grand Seiko. That's the secret sauce, hey? Uh, that is the secret sauce. So, <laughs> that watch meant a lot for the company, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, the following years, you started to see. Um, the next big upgrade, and I should go back actually to, you know, the, the age of the self-dater because, you know, in 1966, the, the self-dater was introduced in 64 
like commercially for sale. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> 1966, they got rid of the word chronometer on the dial and they introduced the Grand Seiko standard. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, you know, the, the Grand Seiko standard was made to exceed the chronometer standard in every way, shape and form possible. And so that was a further emphasis that accuracy is one of the most important aspects of Grand Seiko, right? Mm -hmm. We want to have some of the most accurate watches in the world, you know, as much as possible. And so we, you know, introduced that standard as, you know, the first of its kind, let's say. And uh, as we move forward, you start to see this progression um, into higher frequency watches. And so in 1968, you start to see Grand Seiko introducing both the 45 and 61 GS. Mm -hmm. uh, 45 GS was made by Daini Seikosha, basically the same styling uh, as the 44 GS, but a little bit more compact. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of always been Daini Seikosha's specialty was reducing size, um, making smaller, thinner watches. And then uh, 61 GS, which was an automatic high beat. So the 45 was manual winding. And then from there, you start to see the exceeding of the Grand Seiko standard. So VFA uh, mm -hmm. was introduced the following year, the very fine adjustment. And that was, you know, plus minus two, either way, guaranteed for two years at, you know, at the end of the 60s. Very, uh, very big move, bold move, mm -hmm. let's say. And then... Uh, you know, the following year, we introduced the special standard, which kind of fell in between the regular Grand Seiko standard and the VFA. Mm -hmm. So a little bit uh, higher production capacity, let's say, than the VFA. But, um, you know, still, uh, as it said on the dial, it's still very special. <laughs> so, you know, accuracy is a big part. And then the last generation of Grand Seiko that was made into the mid-70s uh, was the 56GS. Mm -hmm. And so that was, you know, it was... It said high beat on the dial, but it was actually 28,800 beats per hour, mm -hmm. which is an industry standard today, but back then was considered high beat. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the most, I'd say, like um, diverse, um, the higher volume uh, of the vintage. And, you know, they broke out of the box with designs on a lot of those too. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so where do like the the history with grand seiko and like the swiss time trials fit in there and what was sort of that story that that occurred there with that and then i guess like i have a follow-up question i want to ask as well once you've kind of elaborated on the first question yeah so you know the um basically you know starting in 63 in quartz watchmaking but 64 in mechanical watchmaking um Daini and sua seikosha uh, were basically, you know, invited or allowed to participate as a Japanese company in the Swiss chronometer trials in Neuchatel, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at first it wasn't, you know, wasn't groundbreaking. I think uh, in 64, you know, our best, uh, our best ranking was 144th, mm -hmm. which, you know, at least we ranked, but uh, not, you know, not anything to write home about. But what was amazing as the years progressed and very rapidly, you know, by 66, uh, I think it was Daini hit third place, third ranking overall, mm -hmm. uh, 67 in Neuchatel, second and third place by Daini and Suaseko Show, respectively. Right. And so we were on course. We were doing a, an excellent job in terms of, you know, the overall, uh, you know, rankings and 
you know, the testing criteria is, is of course very challenging. And, you know, those, those competitions were dominated by the same couple of different brands for, for many years. So for this, you know, kind of oddball brand that's not really participated for very long um, and also foreign uh, to, to come up so quickly was, was very surprising. So unfortunately uh, by 1968, uh, before the finals uh, were held there, Nostal had canceled uh, the chronometer trials. But Sua uh, <clears throat> Sekosha had decided to still submit anyways um, into the Geneva trials. Okay. And so when they did that in Geneva, they exceeded, I think, anyone's expectations. You know, they kind of swept the board with the exception of quartz watchmaking, highest grade mechanical watchmaking. Uh, also receiving the highest score ever recorded in Geneva's history. Wow. Not only that, but if you, you know, because their their uh, ranking system, their scoring system was kind of inverted uh, compared to Neuchâtel, comparing Neuchâtel and Geneva. Um, if you were to convert that into Neuchâtel's scoring system, we would have also achieved, Suicekosha would have also achieved the highest uh, recorded score in their history. So, amazing results and you know part of the reason of success there was because of high beat so that's why you saw it you know so 68 uh you know we had the success at the chronometer trials 68 coincidentally grand seiko also introduced 36,000 beat per hour high beat in their production line so yeah that was the last time geneva held that competition too by the way was, uh, so we still, I think, hold the record. We technically have to. That's incredible. So what? So I guess, like you know, and, and this is sort of my follow up question: is you know, what was it specifically that Grand Seiko during this era was doing um, special, better, different that was unique compared to maybe what the Swiss industry was doing at the time? Was it, was it more the? Was it more that like the Swiss industry was kind of just resting on their laurels, or was it that? Um, you know, there's something proprietary or special about what Seiko was doing at or Grand Seiko was doing at this time that was completely allowing them to dominate the Swiss in these sorts of time trials. Oh, it's I mean, it's it's a very difficult question. I don't think that, uh, you know, for a second, I would say that, you know, anyone was sitting still and or just sitting on their thumbs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was important for everyone. I think what separated Grand Seiko. Um, yes, from an engineering perspective, I think the movements were excellent. I think that they were very very well constructed you know i mean you can buy a vintage grand seiko nowadays and it'll still you know if it's if it's well uh regulated and adjusted it'll keep amazing time mm -hmm. so you know i i think that the movement design architecture quality of materials for for the era are spectacular mm -hmm. um from an engineering perspective spectacular but i think the key to success all lied within the team that we had doing the adjustment without mm -hmm. them you know, and that's still true today, you know, without the, the skill set, right? They were so dedicated to pursuing perfection in, you know, hairspray adjustment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's one of the bigger challenges that they'll face. That was such an important aspect of our company overall. And I think that, you know, um, the dedication that they had to this craft, was 100% what made that possible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, without, you know, and I, this is why, you know, Grand Seiko is, is not, you know, 
an automated brand. This is why we don't, you know, we can't make a, you know, millions of watches or, you know, a high volume, uh, you know, hun high hundreds of thousands, you know, it's just not possible because of the handwork involved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see behind me, you know, there's a uh... hard at work. Yeah, they're hard at work. They haven't moved at all. They ha haven't haven't moved how. at all. It's it's amazing the <laughs> discipline. No, the uh, you know. So, uh, thank you for sort of that summary, and you got us up to essentially like right into the 1970s when then um, production stopped for a while with Grand Seiko. So, can we talk a little bit about I guess that interruption that uh, happened in the company between the late 1970s up until the the 2000s when we sort of started to see Grand Seiko pop back up on the scene. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, realistically, what happened was, you know, uh, at the same time that we're pushing forward in in this high level of mechanical watchmaking to attain ultra high accuracy, uh, you know, like I said, with the VFA, you know, the most accurate watch on the market at that time, um, the the introduction of the Astron, mm -hmm. the Seiko Quartz Astron. To, you know, again, another December introduction, 1969 this time, uh, Christmas Day, 1969, you know, the the many in the industry, let's say, um, you know, call the courts crisis, constantly referred to uh, more on this side, I would say, is the courts revolution. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that changed, that changed the industry in, in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for for both Seiko shuts. There was a, a huge focus on the production of quartz. And keep in mind, quartz back then was very expensive. You know, a lot of people think that quartz is there to, you know, reduce cost. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case back then. That was, you know, that was innovation. That was, you know, the pursuit of precision. And so there's really, I mean, there's really no way to to achieve any higher level of accuracy with a mechanical watch. So, you know, when... When they introduced the Astron, you know, there was still a lot of hand craftsmanship involved. I mean, they were hand filing the tuning for quartz crystals, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in you know, on diamond paper to to hit the right frequencies. Um, you know, kind of primitive by today's standards, but you know, very cool. Um, so from the you know late '60s, you know, the introduction of the first quartz, let's say the '70s uh, through the eight into the '80s. Um, '80s is when you started to see quartz mass production. And you know, uh, Seiko as a company had, you know, allowed the patents to be open to the world. Competition occurred. Other places started uh, offering quartz at mass volume, low price, and Seiko had to become competitive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where people get that association with Seiko, 80s and 90s of, you know, an inexpensive quartz watch. That's where it derived from. It was out of necessity. But... Not many realized that Seiko still had high-end luxury watchmaking occurring in Japan, but mm -hmm. most of that was only sold in Japan. And so, you know, one of the things I neglected to say is, you know, Grand Seiko was born in 1960, but it never left Japan, right? It was only sold in Japan, and it had remained that way up until 2010. So 50 years, basically, uh, exclusivity to the Japanese market. So even in the 1980s, 1990s, there were Grand Seikos being produced in Japan? Oh, yeah. So in, uh, you know, from the perspective of the name brand Grand Seiko, there was no longer, uh, you know, by about 75, 76, uh, Grand Seiko had kind of faded on the store shelves, maybe a little later than that. Um, and, you know, it was more or less replaced 
with quartz. And, you know, it's, I would say that it's not Grand Seiko, um, but Grand, Grand Quartz kind of mm -hmm. game, became the replacement for Grand Seiko at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and Grand Seiko, you know, was not reborn until 1988. And mm -hmm. they, they introduced their first high-end quartz, uh, the 95 GS. Okay. So that was 1988. Okay. And so like the, um, when you say they're sort of still continuing on with their tradition of like a high-end watchmaking. So we're still seeing, um, you know, development in those movements, even though they're quartz movements, we're also seeing a lot of like still maintaining the level of, of quality and finishing on the cases that, and bracelets oh, yeah. and things like that, that these watches are being offered on. It's just, those aren't necessarily available worldwide. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the quality product that they were producing, uh, Grand Quartz was very expensive, you know, during during the 70s. Um, so when they introduced Grand Seiko back to the market in 1988, mm -hmm. that was, you know, at the time, you know, Quartz was starting to see, you know, the, the reduced price point. So when it was introduced as Grand Seiko in 1988, uh, as the quartz watch, that was handmade, hand finished. You know, it was made to be the prestigious brand that Grand Seiko was. Mm -hmm. Right, craftsmanship was still there, quality was still there, accuracy was at its highest level, basically it had ever been. Uh, you know, that was plus or minus ten seconds per year back in 1988. Wow. So, yeah, and I mean, they were, you know, they were able to achieve that, you know, in numerous different ways. Um, and they were able to achieve that level of accuracy and even higher in the 70s. But, um, you know, for Grand Seiko, there's also the aspect of longevity. And so it's hard to make a quartz watch that's long lasting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just, and just to give you kind of the summary, right, the kind of the philosophy of Grand Seiko, the, the kind of the brand values, you know, accuracy is number one, legibility is number two, because, you know, you can't have a, an accurate watch and not be able to read it. Um, Durability, number three, and obviously beauty is important because no one wants to buy an ugly watch. Mm -hmm. I always say that, right? And it's, people do it all the time, but <laughs> that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with that criteria in mind, you know, quartz does not have a lot of torque, mm -hmm. right? So it can't have very big hands. They have to be real thin, lightweight. The 95 GS didn't have your typical Grand Seiko hands. So... Durability of the movement also is good. It was very good for quartz by by that standard, by that time period standard. But in terms of quartz watchmaking, they wanted to pursue higher. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just uh, just five years later, 95GS was extinct and replaced with what we call 9F quartz. And okay. so that's still in the collection today. Mm -hmm. So what, I guess, like, Talk to me about when this modern era of Grand Seiko sort of started. Like, what what was the What was the discussion that was had about bringing Grand Seiko back to like a worldwide stage, and and how did that sort of begin uh, to take shape and and lead us to where we are right now in twenty twenty three? Yeah, so I mean, really, it kicked off with with the with the nine F, right? Mm. So ninety three, you can kind of consider, you know, the almost the rebirth of the brand at mm -hmm. that point. You know, when they created the nine F. It was built to be, you know, only serviced like a mechanical watch, right? Have high longevity, high accuracy, easy to service, 
high torque. So it had the big heavy hands you knew in Grand Seiko. And that was like really what br brought Grand Seiko truly back um, in the Japanese market. And then 98, they introduced the revival mechanical movement 9S, right? And that'll be, you know, the 25th anniversary this year. Mm -hmm. So 9S was a huge, huge uh, part of kind of the, the, the growth of Grand Seiko as a brand again, because not only did we have a quartz watch now, but we also had, we also had mechanical. And when they introduced the 9S, you know, this is in 98, uh, they also introduced a new standard for Grand Seiko. So the accuracy standard, they looked at the, you know, current uh, situation and, and, you know, comparing uh, COSC and ISO standard exceeded in every way. Hmm. So then the next big evolution was in 2004 mm -hmm. with the introduction of spring drive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, spring drive um, was kind of a game changer. Spring drive, you know, started to be sold under different brand names mm -hmm. um, in the U S market around 2005, 2006. But grand Seiko was only still sold in Japan. So 2010 uh, Shinji Hattori, who is the great grandson of the founder of the company Kintaro Hattori? He's you know it's it's interesting because the company has always been led by a Hattori, hmm. right? Someone from the founding family has always been at the helm, leading this this company, you know, and now both companies into the future. Hmm. So that's really amazing to me because I can't find another company with over a hundred year history that has always had the family involved at the, at the head of the company. Mm -hmm. so, very interesting. But uh, Shinji Hattori had announced at Basel World that Grand Seiko was becoming a global brand. It kicked off, uh, I remember it very distinctly because I was working at a store that sold the high-end Seiko stuff. I had already purchased my first Grand Seiko. I was waiting you know, for the day that we could sell this brand. And um, you know, it was three stores in the entire U.S., let's say, that had them. Mm -hmm. um, and I was working at one of them. And once it came in, it was over. You know, it was, it was on, a, on a trajectory. I, I had no idea what I was in for. So 2010, um, the brand had basically been introduced, but it was a small splash, you know, in a very big pond. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until 2017. Shinji Atori back again at Basel announced Grand Seiko is separating from Seiko and becoming its own independent brand. And I thought that was perfect. Grand Seiko has always been made separate from your typical Seiko products, mm -hmm. right? There's always been a distinct line, um, not only in who's making them, let's say, but also the philosophy of watchmaking. And so it's always been separate in my eyes, but... Seiko's always been at the helm in terms of the, uh, you know, management distribution, you know, so all that changed starting in 2017 mm -hmm. and, you know, they got rid of Seiko on the dial because back then Grand Seiko was a collection under the Seiko umbrella. Mm -hmm. So they made Grand Seiko the dominant name and, and logo still obviously very proud history with Seiko, right? Cause they didn't change the name to, you know, uh, Lexus, <laughs> right? As an example, it's you know, or Crador, you know, whatever the situation may be. But um, you know, they, there's still a lot of pride there, 
right? Mm -hmm. There's there there should be. Grand Seiko, um, you know, really made a name for itself starting in 2017. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brings us into the modern era that we're in now. So we're still experiencing that post 2017 era of Seiko. Yeah. Grand Grand Seiko. And so, you know, you, you touched on, um, the, the philosophy, I guess, of the watchmaking. And, and we've alluded to it a couple of times about, you know, the the circumstances, the environment and the way in which these watches are made, uh, how that affects production and things like that. Can you, I guess, expand on, on that for us? Like what really makes a Grand Seiko special compared to other pieces that are in its price point or just in the luxury watchmaking uh, sphere in general? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, we touched on that in the sense of, uh, you know, the assembly um, and adjustment, you know, the the quality and craftsmanship um, and the handwork that goes into every little detail. So, you know, it's not just, you know, movement assembly. Okay. A lot of companies do that. Um, minimizing automation, obviously, is a, is a big part of that too, um, because you need to hand that, you need to have that craftsmanship, right? You can't, you can't rely on a machine to just a mechanical watch as an example mm-hmm. within this strict grand seiko standard it's just not really possible um the case finishing right we talk about zaratsu but not a lot of people really understand how difficult it, it really is and what zaratsu really is right because zaratsu is you know i mean the name is technically it's not even a japanese word you know, but uh, it comes from the machines that were originally imported uh, to Japan from Europe back in the back in the late 50s. And so the the name Zeratsu is actually the the uh, name of the machine, the Salaz, uh, translated into Japanese and then translated back into English. So okay. interesting. <laughs> yeah. And there, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, back in back in the day, back in the 60s, you know. Zeratsu, uh, you know, was kind of the same across the board. If other companies were doing it, it's all kind of the same. But today, Zeratsu has changed and evolved. And so when you're working with a metal like steel, and then you move to a, a material like titanium alloy, uh, which Grand Seiko has two different titanium alloys that we work with, right? They're more each more difficult than working with stainless steel by multiple times. And then you get into materials like gold several times platinum over several times like you know zaratsu we had to adapt mm-hmm. one of the most interesting things that i've heard is you know one of the designers kind of the senior designers uh back when the 9s was introduced in in 98 um you know he did an interview and he was explaining that he loves creating these new designs and he did the recreation of the 44 gs back in 2013 mm-hmm. and um because at that point, it was almost impossible to recreate it the same way that they had it back in the 60s. And so, you know, his favorite thing is to come up with this incredibly complex design and bring it to the guys who do the case polishing, guys and gals, because, you know, it's a, there's both. So he, he brings them these crazy ornate designs that are very flat faceted, you know, look like crazy origami, let's say. And, uh, and they're saying, oh, this is impossible. And he's like, this is perfect. I want you to work on this. So, you know, it's it's about testing skill and pushing it to the next level. And so you look at the 44GS, which has always been one of the hardest cases in mm-hmm. Grand Seiko to make. But then you look at some of the other introductions that we've had. 
and you know our new Evolution 9 design exceeds that of 44GS, right? Our Tokyo Lion design uh, that's only been done limited so far is is you know exceeding that, right? We're always pushing the envelope in terms of design and how we're going to do it better. And we've created multiple different Zaratsu techniques dependent on case shape or case material. Um, you know, and the craftsmen and women that are doing this, you know, they're to the point where they know the feel when they're grinding the metal up against the machine, they can tell by the feel and the sound that the case is, is done, right? So Zeratsu not only creates this perfect distortion-free mirror finish, mm -hmm. right? You get this perfectly crisp mirror that, you know, I always compare it to like a funhouse mirror where the mirror's curved and it distorts your, the shape of your body, right? And you look at a flat mirror and it's a perfect reflection. Well, we have, you know, Zeratsu always gives you that perfect reflection. Mm -hmm. And in more recent years, we've been able to achieve completely curved surfaces that still somehow give you perfect mirror reflection. So, you know, always constantly evolving and, uh, you know, pursuing higher things. So. But there's still a lot of handwork that goes into these watches, even in the modern era, right? I mean, the watches are hand assembled, the are the finishings on them, obviously, like this, these this really is like a hand made watch. Yeah. And when you look at a lot of our dials, you know, that's, a, you know, we talk about movements, we talk about cases, and we talk about dials in Grand Seiko, like those are the three primary traits, uh, people love to discuss. Mm -hmm. And it, I always feel like uh, as the years move on, like, you know, in, at first it was always about movements and then it moved into cases and now we're still kind of stuck in the dial phase, but it's always those three things. The dials uh, also, you know, most of them are made by press. So we have consistent patterns over and over again, right? And by press, you know, just, it's like, uh, like a stamping method. Mm -hmm. um, so applying a couple hundred tons of pressure to a brass dial base to create the texture, sometimes multiple times, Sometimes, uh, you know, we do different uh, multiple plating treatments or lacquering treatments. Um, but to create the texture, you know, we actually like will hand carve or hammer the mold that does the pressing into the, to create the texture. So there's still hand craftsmanship, but you also have consistency, mm -hmm. quality control, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Well, the dials are something that is exactly like you said. We're kind of in the dial phase right now, and that's always been sort of in the modern era of the of Grand Seiko, in which I've been enjoying the brand. It's always been the dial work has been like really the focus. And um, you know, it, one of the things that always has struck me is uh, so you or as an interesting thought, I guess, with regards is you know we see all these incredible different dial designs that come out, and and you know I don't think. I don't think Grand Seiko is capable of making an ugly dial at all at, at this point, but I'm always curious about the ones we don't see, you know, like the ones, the one, you know, I can only imagine the things that are in the the secret files of Grand Seiko right now that we haven't had a chance to even observe and that are still uh, awaiting to come for us. But can you talk a little bit about, I guess, like what the, the future is for the brand, right? We got all the way up to the present. We've talked about some of the incredible work being done that's going into making these watches, but what really is the long-term vision for the brand? So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, in at the end of the day, the pursuit is always going to be kind of the same, mm -hmm. right? We're always going to be striving for high accuracy, legibility, durability, and beauty. That's, mm -hmm. that's always going to be the driving force behind Grand Seiko. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we've really been diversifying over the last, you know, several years, 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- this is what I love about this brand. Uh, there's so much innovation, right? And you look at, uh, you know, 2020, we introduced two new calibers, mm-hmm. our 9S A5, which is in the white birch that I'm wearing, and the 9R A5, and now A2 is another version. Um, complete innovation, mm-hmm. right? Spring drive is is the perfect example. We have this innovative movement that kind of has a unique twist on an escapement mm-hmm. and and somehow has created a mechanical or automatic watch that has the highest accuracy level with this kind of hybrid escapement um, within. For 9S A5, we developed a conventional, uh, I shouldn't say conventional, well, I should say uh, a purely mechanical escapement that is unlike any other in, in the world. Mm-hmm. And also achieving the highest power reserve of any high beat movement, 36,000 uh, on the market today. So that's a hard thing to do. You know, the the higher the frequency, the more power it consumes, the harder it is to make a long power reserve. So, you know, we're pushing boundaries there. And then last year we introduced a constant force turbine. So like between those three things, mm-hmm. the future is bright. Mm-hmm. I think that we're showing people that there's really no limits anymore. Um, I, I'd, you know, I'd say that the the only limitation for Grand Seiko is that it has to make sense. Mm-hmm. It has to be contributing to those four pillars, those four brand values that I mentioned: mm-hmm. accuracy, legibility, durability, and beauty. Mm-hmm. Right. If it doesn't, then I don't think it's for Grand Seiko. Mm-hmm. Let's say, like, we're not just going to come out with a watch that you know that has a feature that serves no real purpose, no real practical purpose. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see that as fitting for the brand, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I mean, anything's possible, but like a constant force tourbillon, we can use that as a perfect example. Tourbillon by itself is really art by today's standards. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not really, it's not really anything that anyone's buying for higher accuracy. Mm-hmm. You know, very few companies have actually come out with chronometer grade or higher um, tourbillons. Mm-hmm. But with Grand Seiko, we included it for a reason. Mm-hmm. And by integrating it with a constant force mechanism, we achieve basically the highest level of accuracy and stability that we've found thus far in a mechanical wristwatch. Mm-hmm. So... And we're talking the possibilities of achieving spring drive-like accuracy in a watch that's purely mechanical. Hmm. So, you know, it's something really special. And, you know, one of the most exciting parts about working for this brand, I would say, is is seeing that come to life. I I feel like I always knew something like that was going to come. I just didn't know when Hmm. or how it was going to be portrayed. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's... I think there's a lot to look forward to with Grand Seiko. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Kodo, the the Constant Force Turbion is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. You know, constant innovation, refining ourselves as a brand, improving the practicality of the brand. Um, you know, there's there's no reason to do the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Right? We can come out with, you know, with watches that are similar in style and stuff like that because they're, they're always going to have the same basis for the design code like we talked about earlier but when it comes to the actual longevity 
the the watchmaking side, the engineering, the the focus on that accuracy, you know, uh, going back to, um, you know, talking about the white birch and the, how the legibility improved even over my snowflake, right? Mm -hmm. That's another one. Um, and then, you know, looking at the durability standpoint, you know, we're even inter inter introducing new materials. You know, we've got uh, a new alloy we call Brilliant Hard Titanium, mm -hmm. which is over twice the hardness of stainless steel and more brilliant, basically, or or brighter in color uh, than what you would find with any other titanium. Um, we just also, uh, you know, started introducing Ever Brilliant Stainless Steel, uh, which is basically the world's most corrosion resistant stainless steel. And you think about that and you think about dive watches, right? Corrosion is, is mostly associated with dive watches, but we have it in kind of an everyday, you know, for, we have it in the 44 GS design. So that's not a dive watch, obviously, but the philosophy there is, you know, we have this amazing new material and we want this watch to last as many lifetimes as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. Right. So by using, you know, regular 316L steel, yeah, it's fine. Uh, you know, using any kind of stainless steel, it's fine. But the higher the corrosion resistance, the less pitting that can possibly occur. So, you know, you want to hand this down to your son and he wants to hand it down to his son and, and so on and so on. You know, after 100 plus years, is pitting going to occur naturally just from the oils of your skin? Not from diving, but just from everyday wear. And that does happen with a lot of like the vintage watches. You'll see mm -hmm. the corrosion and uh, we want to prevent that. So there's always some new innovation that we're working on that will push us to the next level. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, also, you know, what you see behind me and I'll kind of scoot myself a little out of the way here, but this is, you know, this is a huge investment on part of the brand. Uh, we built this amazing new studio in, in Shizukuishi in northern Japan in order to, we want to increase our capacity someday, mm -hmm. but it's going to take us a long time to get there. So, you know, a lot of these seats are going to be empty, uh, as you see here, but, <clears throat> you know, we want to have the ability to increase our watchmakers. We also want to have this beautiful facility so they can, you know, one, appreciate their job even more, too, so people can go and visit and see how the watches are actually made, because this is one of the best parts about the brand, right? Mm -hmm. This is, you know, this is the future. And now that travel's open in Japan, uh, I was fortunate enough to go with uh, one of my colleagues uh, who just joined us from Hodinki, John Buse. Um, we, we went to Japan in December. And we were the first Americans to go, you know, into this place. And I have never been so impressed. And, you know, I've been on the factory trip a couple of times. Um, I love everything about those trips. But this is such an amazing facility. So beautifully done, but also gives you so much access to everything, uh, you know, Grand Seiko. And, you know, the nature surrounding it, too, is, is really impressive as well. So a lot of really cool things uh, in store. I think, and, you know, have already occurred and, you know, still to come. So much to come, you know, you've, you've shared so much time with us, uh, you know, giving us kind of the history of, of the brand, your history, the, the contributions of, of Grand Seiko to watchmaking and really giving us a good view of what the brand is about. Um, truly it's spectacular to, to see and hear the things that Grand Seiko are already doing and to uh, anticipate the things that, that are coming. You know, um, I like to ask, 
most brand representatives this at the very end of of all my episodes you know sort of uh you know just just a way to summarize kind of the episode in its totality but uh, essentially you know as if you as if there haven't been enough reasons already disclosed just in the duration of our of our conversation if you could really boil it down what is the number one reason why someone should buy a grand seiko over all the other watches that are out there you know i i mean you buy it for yourself you know mm -hmm. at the end of the day it's uh it's for you and you know, I think that there's a lot of reasons why people buy watches for themselves, but I feel like Grand Seiko is something that will continuously impress you. Mm -hmm. I, I've never owned a, a watch that I get so lost in looking at, right? So mesmerizing, whether it's spring drive or this high beat, you know, a lot of people talk about spring drive and how the second hand glides and, you know, it's, it's mesmerizing. But it's, it's not just with spring drive. It's also with our other watches. It's all about the details. And so if you want to continuously impress yourself, you know, looking at these under a loop or, or just sitting in a chair and, you know, getting kind of lost, looking at your watch, looking at the dial, looking at the movement, you know, that's what it's all about. You know, mm -hmm. appreciation for the craftsmanship, appreciation for the engineering, but, you know, it's it's really just something you can appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's 100% it. I mean, it really is a watch that just offers, I think, some of the best of what watchmaking can do right now and, and at an accessible mm -hmm. point. And and you touched on it really early on, in, and we, we talked about it really early on in, in our recording today, but it's it's you can tell that the people that are making the watches are actually passionate about the product, and they really care about the watches that they're making. They absolutely do. You know, yeah. it's, uh, you know, very fortunate again to, to, you know, get to know a lot of the people behind the, the work that goes into Grand Seiko, you know, working at the benches mm -hmm. and I'll tell you some of the best people out there and they take so much pride in what they do. Very humble, of course, but, um, you know, their, their goal is, you know, always to, to do better mm -hmm. and, it's just, it's really remarkable. Uh, you know, you see these, uh, you know, men and women of our studios continuously winning awards in Japan for either local recognition, um, you know, countrywide recognition and global recognition. And, you know, it's just like the, you go and you see the awards listed on the wall or, you know, in the, you know, display. It's, it's really incredible. You know, they, they they focus <laughs> on on doing the best job they possibly can. Oh, that's that's wonderful and incredible to have such wonderful people working uh, at such a great company. Well, Joe, it's been terrific chatting with you. Uh, it's been fantastic uh, having you on the show. I really thank you for giving up your time to to come in and um, chat with my audience and to let people know about what uh, what Grand Sickle is all about. Uh, really uh, quickly, totally my pleasure. Absolutely. Where are some of the, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's not hard to find, but what is sort of like the uh, landing spots uh, online where people can find out more about Grand Seiko if they want to look further into it? So grand-seiko.com is the global website. Um, so that will give you kind of an all-encompassing, uh, you know, uh, brand, uh, you know, portfolio, let's say the collection, things of that nature. Um, we also have uh, our boutique uh, online. Um, so for the U S is grandsecoboutique.us. Mm -hmm. Um, but each, 
each different market has, you know, basically the same URL, different country code at the end. Um, so, you know, those are obviously uh, good outlets as well. So I know for the U.S. market, you know, we try and, you know, make it a little bit different and and give you uh, a, maybe a little bit more information or details, um, you know, on each on each individual product. But, you know, I think there's a, a plethora of information out there, um, you know, and, and some of the times, you know, the best thing to do is is to, you know, ask some of the 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 friends on uh, on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you know, you know, what do you think of that watch? How do you how do you enjoy it? Because I mean, honestly, you know, the best marketing for Grand Seiko has always been word of mouth, mm-hmm. and you know, there's no one better to to tell you things about the brand than the people that own them, right? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I, I, I'll definitely make sure I drop uh, links to all of those uh, landing spots in the description boxes below on the podcast platforms and likewise for YouTube. Um, additionally, for myself, if anyone has any questions, comments, feedback, feel free to shoot me an email at ricoswatchespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you enjoy listening to these episodes in the audio mediums across the various podcasting platforms that's available on and would like to enjoy them in a video medium, you can check it out at the Rico's Watches Podcast at YouTube channel, which is just Rico's Watches Podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and if you, and I guess as well, if you enjoy uh, following along uh, on the YouTube and on the podcast platforms, you want to go to the central hub for the community surrounding Rico's Watches Podcast, feel free to head, head over to the uh, Rico's Watches Podcast uh, Instagram page as well, just at Rico's Watches Podcast. Feel free to shoot me a DM there anytime. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, thank you. It was tremendous uh-huh. chatting with you, chatting with, uh, you know, hearing about Grand Seiko directly from the company itself is, is such a privilege and something that I, I really enjoyed doing today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. No, it's totally my pleasure. I feel like you were just really, you know, uh, not you weren't talking to the company today, you were talking to me. Uh, you know, kind of my vision, my perspective of, of the brand and, um, you know, but uh, greatly appreciate, I really, you know, appreciate you having me on and it was absolutely my pleasure to, to talk with you. All right, Joe, you take care. You have yourself a wonderful afternoon. You too. Thank you. All right, bye.